Mark chapter 5. Let me pray for us as, um, as we read God's words. Our Father, thank you uh, so much for being gracious enough to reveal things to us in your word which we would have not known otherwise. Uh, thank you for revealing things to us about the world uh, we live in. And so please help us to be people uh, who live in light of what you reveal. And please speak to us uh, this morning. We pray those things uh, for your glory, that we might better live for you. Amen. Uh, page 840, um, Mark uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Uh, speak about Jesus and the, and the disciples. They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of, this, out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in, in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And how, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, the demons, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marvelled. Well, the year is 1942, if you cast your mind back. We're with the British Army in Singapore. And the British Army in Singapore have an enemy, uh, the Japanese. And the Japanese would dearly love to conquer them and take Singapore. But the British Army are not worried. If you're with them, you'll see they were not worried. They were at ease. Because uh, the British Army thought that Singapore was an impregnable fortress. And moreover, they thought that the Japanese were poor fighters. They did not believe the Japanese had the speed or the planning necessary to conquer them, to attack and conquer them. And so they thought they had nothing uh, to worry about. Well, if you know your history, you'll know that in 1942, the Japanese overran the British. They shattered the British defence, and what followed was a bloody massacre. See, the mistake that the British made 
I was underestimating their opponent. And so when war came, they were defeated. When the battle started, they lost because they were not prepared. And I think the Christian can be in danger of doing the same. The Christian is at war. When Christ calls you, he calls you to strap on armour. And it's a war on three fronts. Uh, Many of us will be are familiar with it. It's a fight with the flesh, a fight with the world, and a fight with the devil. When you become a Christian, you enlist in God's army, and those three enemies rise up against you and work together in their attacks to try and bring you down. But it seems to me that as conservative evangelicals, while we are well prepared to fight our flesh, our sinful nature, and while we are well prepared to fight the world, we seem rarely to talk about the devil. And we rarely consider that he is at war with us. I can think of many books written about our war with our flesh and our war with the world, but I really struggle to think of books written specifically about our fight with the devil. I think we can be a little bit like the British in Singapore. We underestimate our opponent. But scripture and Jesus are so clear that there is a war on, a war with the devil, and it's a war that is serious. Jesus himself teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. And when you pray the Lord's Prayer, do you mean that? Do you believe that the devil is dangerously at large in the world? Because Jesus certainly did, and he was someone who was tempted by the devil for 40 days. If anyone knew the devil, it was Christ. And there's a whole chapter in Ephesians, you may know it, Ephesians chapter 6, where we're called to strap on the armour of God. Uh, but Paul calls us to strap on the armour of God, stand and defend. Uh, stand and defend against what? Well, it's not the flesh, and it's not the world, but it's the schemes of the devil. I think we struggle to remember that because we, we can't see the devil. We can't, we can't point him out and say, there he is. Uh, but just because we can't see him does not mean our fight is fake. It's not an illusion because he is invisible. Have you forgotten that there is a war on? And our passage this morning, Mark chapter 5, is so clear that the devil is at large in the world and has much to help us with our fight with the devil. And it may be that you're here this morning and you're a little sceptical. Maybe you're a little sceptical about the existence of the devil or at least about the existence of unclean spirits, of demon possession. But let me just say to you briefly, this account is not presented to us allegorically. It's presented to us historically. Christ clearly thought this man was demon-possessed. He heals him of demon possession, not of some kind of illness. The disciples uh, clearly thought the same as well because they wrote it down and passed it on to us. And to then think 2,000 years later that we knew better than Christ and his disciples, I think would be a serious mistake to make. And and you may be asking, okay, so the devil exists and spirits exist, but why do do I not see his visible work? in the UK today? And that's a good question, and there's lots of things I could say. Uh, but my major pushback would be this. Our society is convinced that the devil and God doesn't exist, that they are, in fact, uh, fake, that they are a myth. If, uh, if the devil made himself evident, would it not cause more people to be saved? Would it not cause more people to come and seek salvation in Christ rather than less. I'll leave that uh, for you to chew on.
But let's turn to this account this morning, not in skepticism, but in faith, and see what God has to teach us about our fight with the devil. And the first thing we need to see, very simply, is that the devil destroys. The devil destroys. Do not be deceived about who he is. The purpose of the devil is death and destruction. Jesus reaches the other side of the lake. We saw uh, last week that he sets off. Uh, then, then, then happened the dramatic account of the calming of the storm. And, and then he reaches the other side of the lake uh, in this country of Gerasenes. That's a Gentile country, non-Jewish. And immediately, verse 2, this man confronts him. And this man has an unclean spirit. In other words, this man is under the power of the devil. He is what we might call a demoniac. And he's not simply under the power of the devil. He is overwhelmed by the devil. Uh, Later on in verse 9, the unclean spirit confesses, my name is Legion, for we are many. The unclean spirit's allusion is to a Roman legion, which had up to 6,000 soldiers in them. So this, this unclean spirit is in itself a terrifying force. And in verses 2 through to 5, we see the effect of legion on this man. And I have to say, it is surely the most lamentable accounts, one of the most lamentable accounts of human wretchedness found in Scripture. I think it should make us weep. Because the man's home is among the tombs, verse 3. That's where he dwells. That's where he lives in a graveyard, a place characterised by mourning and grief. He's surrounded by the reek of death. Uh, he is utterly beyond human help, verse 3 to 4, when, when people try and restrain him and tie him down as much to protect uh, themselves, probably, as, as to protect him. They can't. No one could bind him, not even with a chain, verse 3. No one had the strength to subdue him. And so this man dwells in a graveyard, and he is utterly alone, completely friendless. He has no companions. And verse 5, <clears throat> night and day, so all the time, this man wanders alone, crying out and cutting himself with stones, alone and helpless, he's driven to despair and turns to self-harm. And that is where the devil has taken him and driven him. This place of utter wretchedness. This man seems almost more animal than human. Legion is a ruthless slave master and before him, this man is helpless. Now, imagine with me for a moment that instead of the devil doing this to this man, it was another human, another human who was the slave master, another human who had enslaved and controlled him, another human who had driven him to this this pitch of despair and misery and and self-harm. Would you not hate that man? Would you not feel repulsed by him? And if he shook his hand, would you not your stomach churn within you? Well, that's how we should feel about the devil. We often don't, but we should feel repulsion. He's not someone to be courted. In fact, he is someone to be feared. Why should we fear him? What is the devil's intention? What does he want? Well, his purpose is death and destruction, our death and destruction and your death and destruction that's what he wants we see that in the fact that the man lives in the tombs he's a living dead man 
Let's do that in the way he harms himself. But most strikingly, we see it in what happens with the pigs, verses 11 to 13. And it may, it might strike you as unfair uh, that Jesus sends the demons to the pigs uh, because the pigs then drown themselves, all to thousands of them. And that is a massive financial blow for those herdsmen. It would be a massive financial blow today. But let me ask this question. What would have been lost without the drowning of the pigs? What would have been lost from their account? Well, the sheer and brutal, destructive desire and power of legion. And the devil seeks to destroy those he enslaves. His mission is death. And when the demons enter the pigs, they kill themselves. So get, get rid of your fun-loving images of the naughty man with horns. We should be afraid to mock him. And the world mocks the devil at great risk. He is not a joke to be laughed at at Halloween. His purpose is to destroy it. And this account this morning, this picture we get of what the devil is like, is, is a microcosm of the whole biblical picture. The Bible has always shown us the devil's intention is to murder us. The devil hates God and he hates all those made in the likeness of God. He hates us because we're made in God's image. And so from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, he has desired our destruction. Genesis 3 verse 4, the devil says to the woman Eve, when tempting her to eat from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says, you shall not surely die. And that is a murderous lie because he knew full well that if they did eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die, that disobedience to God brings death. And so he lies of intent to murder. He lied to the first humans. I wonder if we forget that about the fall. We kind of focus very much on our sin and that's right and that's good, but we forget the devil was there that he was instrumental in the fall, bringing death to mankind. And he is instrumental in ensuring that as many people as possible remain dead. That is his work today. The devil is destined to eternal torment and hell. And he desires to drag as many of us with him as possible. And ever since the fall, humanity has been in his domain. That's what the Bible tells us. Humanity lives in the devil's Domain, and, and while he does not possess us physically as he does this man and torment us physically in this way, he does subject the whole of humanity to the same miserable state spiritually. Because of the fall, we are in his domain. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. He says to the Pharisees that the devil is their father. And we are helpless under his rule, which is really bad news. But there is Good news, because while the devil destroys, secondly, Christ delivers. Christ delivers, Christ delivers from the power of the devil. For Legion, the presence of Christ is disastrous. Verse 6, the demoniac has run at Christ with what original intent, we can't be sure, but he ends up falling at his feet. And that is a stance of subservience, a stance of complete submission. And crying out of a loud voice, the only thing he can do is plead with Christ. He pleads, verse 7, not to be tormented. And he pleads to be sent out of the country, not to be sent out of the country, verse 10. You see, before Christ, Legion literally has no legs 
to stand before, stand on. Uh, he is bowed down before him. He has no weapons to battle Christ with. He can only plead. So while humanity is helpless under the rule of the devil, the devil is helpless before Christ. Jesus is not merely powerful over the physical world, as the calming of the storm shows, but he is powerful over the spiritual world. Now, Legion in verse 13 has to actually ask Christ for permission to do something, to lead the demoniac and enter the pigs. And the contrast between Legion's power before Christ and his power over us in, at the beginning of the passage is, is so stark. We are helpless before the devil, but he is helpless before Christ. And that's extremely important for us to remember. Our world likes to picture God and the devil as kind of two equal but uh, opposing forces, the kind of side of light facing off against the side of darkness. But that is a lie. The devil is not a bad version of God. God and the devil are not equal in being. God alone is self-existent. God alone is eternal and self-sufficient. God alone is sovereign. And the devil owes his existence to God. That's a hard truth, but he does. He's a created but fallen being. Rather than being his bad opposite, he's more like a, a rotten fruit on God's tree of creation. The devil is powerless before God, and we can see that in the way he approaches the Son of God. He bows down before him, verse 7, bows down before Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And there lies a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope for a world helpless in the hands of the devil. We've seen the devil's purpose is to destroy, but we see here that Christ's purpose is to deliver those captured by the devil and that he is powerful to do that because verse 8, Christ has come to deliver this man. He's saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirits. We, we saw that Jesus wanted to cross the Sea of Galilee, but here we see why. He comes for this purpose, to seek and save and deliver this man. And he does. The man who originally was crying out, uh, miserable, cutting himself with stones, we now find verse 15, sitting clothed in his right mind. Uh, in the fall, man fell and humanity is marred. And the devil took control. In salvation, Christ delivers and humanity is restored and the devil is defeated. And, and that's the way it has to be. Christ must come to us. Gripped by the power of the devil, we are unable to go to Christ. This demoniac could no more go to Christ. Um, he, just, he couldn't do it. He couldn't save himself. He was helpless. But this account sh uh, shows us gloriously that Christ is willing to come to us, to deliver this man who's willing to go into an unclean country, Gentile land, to, to a place which has unclean practices farming pigs to save an unclean and wretched man Christ is willing to plunge into the filth and save him and Christ is willing to plunge into the filth of our lives and, and save us and I wonder if you're a Christian this morning do you see your face in this passage if you're a Christian you were once spiritually in the state of the demoniac not physically, but spiritually, as good as dead, living in a graveyard. 
but now delivered by Christ and restored, you are saved from the rule of the devil. But ultimately, how does Christ deliver us from the grip of the devil? Because exorcism here is just a picture, and Christ delivers us by his death. So Colossians 1 verse 13 says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's the devil's domain, and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How does Christ deliver us from the devil? By forgiving our sins. Think of it this way. In the courtroom of God, the devil plays the role of prosecutor, the role of accuser. And sadly, he really does have a case. His evidence is condemning. He has only one witness, it's you and your sin. This case is condemning because we are by nature rebels against God and we deserve death and judgment. And that's the trump card he pulls out in God's courtroom. And that's how he claims and enslaves us. But when Jesus dies on the cross, he takes that trump card from him. Our sin is paid for by Christ's blood. The devil's accusing voice is silenced. And we are rescued from his rule and power. So if you're a Christian, you're delivered uh, from his domain. You're a delivered man uh, or woman. The devil can no longer drag you down to hell. He has no case against you anymore. When he accuses you, he can point at the cross. If you're a Christian, Christ has rescued you out of his hands. The devil is fearsome. He shouldn't be mocked, but in Christ, we have no need to fear him anymore. But he can make your life far more miserable than it should be. Far closer to the state of a demoniac than it should be. And he does that by lying to us. He does that by presenting us with temptations. That is the devil's work. He whispers in our ear, will God really forgive you for that particular sin? He whispers in our ear, God doesn't really delight in your efforts to please him. You know that, don't you? He whispers in our ear, your suffering is a sign that God doesn't care. Or he whispers in our ear, that that sin that God says you shouldn't do, it's actually really good for you. He's restricting you. There are lies whispered in our ears and we must fight against them. And so do your prayers reflect the reality presented to us in Scripture? Is there realism in the way you pray? And do you pray with fervency and urgency? Deliver me from the evil one. Do you arm yourself with the promises of God? Have you forgotten that there there is a war on? Christ has won the decisive victory at the cross, disarming the devil. This is a foretaste of that. And he has delivered and won you. But the battle continues as we fight to resist his lies and temptations. The devil destroys, but Christ delivers. Let's lastly spend some time in the last seven verses, verses 14 to 20, and we see two responses to Jesus, two responses to this miracle. And the question for us is, do you see Christ as too costly to have or too priceless to lose? Do you see Christ as too costly to have or too priceless to lose? 
The two uh, responses to deliverance on the man are first from the people in the country who gather and hear of their deliverance and second from the man himself. And so first from the people, uh, they respond to Christ by seeing him as too costly to have around. The, the herdsmen who, whose pigs were killed by legion run and tell all that they can find about it. Verse 14, people in the city and in the country and the people come, the same people who presumably had previously tried to restrain a demoniac and so therefore knew something of the, the, the destructive power of legion. And yet their response to the miracle is not wonder and awe, but fear. Verse 15, when they see the demoniac restored to his right frame of mind, they were afraid. They look at the 2,000 drowned pigs and they turn from Christ in fear. And they begin, verse 17, to beg Jesus to depart from the region. They respond by seeing Jesus as a man who is too costly to have around. Instead of rejoicing in the salvation of the demoniac, they focus on the personal cost. Instead of finding joy, they find fear. And so they reject Jesus, the man who has come seeking to save and deliver. And, and it's a tragedy. Because they've forgotten that Legion has begged to stay in the region. And Jesus has given Legion permission. The pigs are drowned, so presumably Legion is still at large. And the devil destroys. You see, they undervalue how much they need Christ. They think they're better off without him. Far from pleading with Christ to leave, they should have been pleading with him to stay. But they could only see Jesus as, as too costly to have around. And, and how many people think the same today? Think they're better off without Christ, that Christ is too costly to have around. Too costly to give, give up the way I want to live and too costly to live the way that he calls me to live. So many people think that what you lose for Christ is more than what you gain. And maybe you've been tempted to think that way this morning. Well, when you are, look at the demoniac's response. The man who is physically possessed by the power of the devil, because he sees Christ as too priceless to lose. Verse 18, as Jesus begins to leave, the saved man comes and falls at his feet and begs that he might go with him. His overwhelming desire is to be with his saviour. And if you've ever been tempted to think that the Christian life is too costly, then just look at what you've been delivered from. The destructive hands of the devil. When you enter the courtroom of God, the devil can no longer drag you down to hell with his accusing voice. Christ is too priceless to lose. So like this man, do you desire your saviour? Do you want to run to be with him? And if you lack that desire, then take a longer, deeper look at verses 2 to 5 and picture your face there. Because before being saved, that is what you once were. And say to yourself, there but for the grace of Christ go I. And when you reflect deep, and long on that, the cost of following Christ will seem like no cost at all. But the tragedy is that if you reject Christ this morning, he will turn away from you. Verse 18, the people plead of Christ to leave, and so he does. If you reject Christ, you have no 
hope. Humanity is helpless in the grip of the devil, unable to save themselves. So when Christ comes to you, you simply cannot afford to turn him away. He is the only glimmer of hope you have. Do you see Christ as too costly to have or too precious to lose? And as we finish, we see that Jesus does uh, not actually permit this man to come, go with him. One day, of course, the man will be with him. All those who follow Christ will get their heart's desire, which is to be with Christ. That's what makes heaven so good. But for now, Christ commands a man to go and tell everyone, verse 19, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he calls us to do the same. In his grace, Christ leaves a witness to the country that's rejected him. And the the man obeys, verse 20, he proclaims it. You can hardly imagine him whispering it down the side alley. No, he gets his megaphone out. It becomes his mission to tell everyone about Christ, do you know how much the Lord has done for you? How much mercy Christ has had on you? We've been saved from a destructive master to serve a better and good master. Our father is no longer the devil. Our father is God. And maybe the call to witness about Christ, the world, is a, is a heavy burden on your shoulders. Well, dwell deeply on what you've been saved from. And I think you'll soon begin to find that heavy burden becomes more and more delightful. And as you see the world as it is, in the domain of darkness, enslaved by the devil, then you'll want to go and tell people increasingly so. We've been delivered from the destroyer. But he will return to try and claim us back. He will whisper lies in our ears about who he is, about who we are about who Christ is. That's what he's always done. And when he does, look to Christ, who will deliver you. Look to your future. As we finish uh, Romans 16, Paul finishes his letter with these words. In due time, in due time, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not under Christ's feet. That's what happened at the cross under your feet. One day you will share completely in the victory of Christ, the victory that he won on the cross. One day the world will belong completely to Christ. The gospel will triumph. And all those who bow the knee to Christ will triumph with him. The devil is fearsome, but we have no need to fear him. We have a battle to fight against him, but victory will come to those who see Christ as too priceless to lose. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, you are gracious to us in revealing what the devil is like in your word. And we do thank you that in Christ you have saved us from his grip, that we belong to you. And so we pray that we'd be men and women who flee from him and who come to you and seek shelter in Christ who can deliver. Amen.